And when he had heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. And when they had come to Jesus, they earnestly entreated him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him. For he loves our nation, and he has built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does this. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the multitudes that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Let's pray. Lord, just thank you for your word and how rich it is. And I pray that you can open up our hearts today so we can absorb your message and help me convey the uh, truths that will help change our lives to live out godly life um, that reflect your character and what you'd like from us. In your holy name, amen. Okay. So today, I wanted to start off with a small story um, about a coffee I had with Blake um, a couple months ago. I called him and, and asked him if I could use the story, so he's okay with it. And uh, so the, faith, the topic of faith came up, and um, I asked him, do you think I have faith? And he said, well, of course you do. And I, and I said, well, what about me tells you that I have faith? So how do you know I have faith? And uh, Blake said, well, it's your knowledge of the Bible. And I was very surprised at his answer. Um, but I, and I challenged him and I said to him, well, where in scripture does it talk about your knowledge of the Bible being requirement for your faith? And, and Blake, being humble, said, I don't know. And I thought about that story this week when I was working on this uh, passage because I wanted you guys to put yourselves in this position. And, and uh, a question I wanted to propose to you guys, and I want you to keep this in your minds as we go through our passage today is, what would you say if someone asked you what faith in Jesus looked like? I think it's a very fair question, and I think it's a common question that we might have. And I think we all have our versions, and I'm hoping that when we're done today, we can um, have a better understanding of what that might be. So, before we dive into chapter 7, I want to give you a little bit of context um, prior in Luke chapter 6. So you don't have to turn there with me, but if you want to look it up later yourself, you can. I'll just summarize for you what's going on. So in chapter 6, verse 13, 
we see that Jesus has come down from the mountain after praying all night to choose his inner 12 disciples. Moving forward, we see in verses 17 to 19, there's a great multitude of disciples who had come to hear Jesus speak and to be healed. Now, Jesus having a large crowd around him, he takes this opportunity to speak his well-known Beatitude sermon, beginning in verse 20. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with this teaching by Jesus, he was speaking all about how to live a life devoted to Jesus and the kingdom of God. Some examples of this kingdom living from the message were verse 27, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Verse 30 and verse 34, be known to be generous. Verse 47, act upon Jesus' words and you will build a house with a strong foundation. So you can see Jesus here challenging the disciples following him to be true followers of God. So with this context now, let's go back to chapter 7, verse 1. And the first thing I want you to notice here is when he completed his discourse, which means his Beatitudes sermon, he went to Capernaum. And in Capernaum, there was an interesting situation that awaited him. In verse 2, we see a centurion had a slave that was very sick and about to die. The centurions were Roman soldiers put in authority over 100 men. It was common for them to have slaves and also dispose of them quite easily, especially when they became of no use to them. An example I heard this week in a sermon was that Roman slaves were treated like farm tools, examined once a year, and whatever had no use or purpose was thrown out or discarded. But here in verse 2, we see a much different relationship. Not only was he just a slave, but we get to see the love and care that the centurion master has for his slave. In verse 2, it says, the slave was highly regarded by him. Verse 3 and verse 7, we see that he wants to save the life of his slave. So in these verses, the centurion is clearly showing love and compassion towards his servant. Now Luke doesn't tell us exactly what the slave was sick with, but in the parallel account of Matthew chapter 8, verse 6, he describes the slave as lying paralyzed at home, suffering in pain. So what was the centurion going to do to save the life of his dying slave? Let's take a look at verse 3. And when he'd heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. The first observation I want you to notice is that the centurion had never met Jesus before and only heard about him. The Bible never tells us how the centurion heard about Jesus, but Luke 4 gives us a clue. Turn with me to Luke 4, verse 31. Just back a couple pages. Let you guys get there a bit. 
So verse 31, mine reads, And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. Now if we go down all the way to verse 37, he says, And the report about him was getting out into every locality in the surrounding district. So we can see here through Luke chapter 4 that Jesus had already preached and performed many miracles in Capernaum. So he would have, ha- he would have become well known throughout the area. This isn't his first time. So with that in mind, we can see how the centurion came to the conclusion that Jesus could heal and save the slave even though he had never met or seen Jesus before, the centurion takes his first step of faith by sending Jesus a message. Let's turn back to Luke 7, verse 3. Out of all the people that the centurion could have chosen to deliver his message, I find it interesting that he chose the Jewish elders. It's worth noting that the Jewish elders were willing to carry out the centurion's request, considering the Jewish and Roman people did not always get along. The elders held the centurion in high regard, and we see this in part B of verse 4. They earnestly entreated him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him. So using their spiritual compass, they made a case before Jesus on why the centurion deserved to have this miracle done to him, before him. So what kind of things did the centurion do to be worthy in the eyes of the elder? Elders, sorry. Verse 5 tells us, For he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. The centurion's love for Israel was not just an emotional affection. Based on his reputation with the Jewish elders and building the Jewish synagogue, I think it's fair to say that he actually worshipped Yahweh. Love in the Bible is defined by action, which means his actions made him known to people around him that he loved the nation of Israel. Self-sacrificial and unconditional love. Remember who this guy is. A Roman centurion who, is, who was put in charge to rule over Jewish people. Instead of viewing them as an enemy, he viewed the Jewish people with love. In verse 5, we have further evidence of this love. He built them their synagogue. Again, a Roman Gentile giving the Jewish people a place to worship and teach God's word. So as you can see, this guy had a pretty impressive spiritual resume. The centurion has has been both loving and generous as described by the elders. If we quickly think back to Jesus' sermon in chapter 6, both loving your enemies and being generous with your wealth were two of the Beatitudes Jesus preached about. Knowingly or not, the centurion was fulfilling them. 
But what's most important about the centurion's faith is, he, is who he believes Jesus to be. And we pick this up in verse 6. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. The first thing we see is that, is that Jesus agreed to come to the home of the centurion. But before he could get to the home, the centurion sent another message, this time using his friends. The centurion's message to Jesus reveals his full understanding of who Jesus is and who the centurion is in relation to Jesus. He begins his message in verse 6b. Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. There are six things I don't want you to miss in the centurion's message. Number one, he addresses Jesus as Lord. Verse 6b, he says, Lord, do not trouble yourself. I looked up the Greek word for Lord here. And forgive me if the pronunciation is not correct, but I believe it is pronounced as kairios. And another place where this word is, same word is used is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And that reads, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. So we can see the centurion believes Jesus has heavenly origin here. The second thing is that he believes he is, under, he is unworthy to be in the presence of Jesus. And we see this in two ways. Verse 6b and verse 7, when he says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. So he is not worthy for Jesus to come to him. And verse 7, I even consider myself, I don't even consider myself worthy to come to you, meaning he can't even consider himself worthy to come to Jesus either. I think it's important to note how the centurion views himself to Jesus. There's something about his understanding that prevents him from feeling worthy to be in, the, in, in Jesus' presence. Which is interesting because Jesus would have had both believers, unbelievers, righteous and unrighteous people sitting around him and hearing his teaching every day. But this centurion didn't even feel worthy to do that. Number three, he believes that he's not worth Jesus troubling himself over. Truthfully or not, he feels like he's an inconvenience to Jesus. Verse 6b, when he says, Lord, do not trouble yourself further. Number four, he believes Jesus has authority over all things, including life and death, and can act without authority using words alone. 
We pick this up in verse 7b. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. The centurion just asked Jesus just to say the word. So he clearly understands Jesus' authority being presented out in just plain words. And number five, he believes that Jesus is under authority to God the Father. In verse eight, for I too am a man under authority. And number six, he affirms his understanding of the authority that Jesus has based upon the earthly authority that he has as a centurion. Verse 8. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does this. See, the centurion knows that his earthly authority represents the heavenly authority that Jesus has. Jesus being the Son of God would not have, on, not have only had the same power in his words, but has authority over all things. The centurion describes himself very differently than the Jewish elders. They saw him as a man deserving of Jesus and his healing based upon the actions done for the Jewish nation. Whereas the centurion viewed himself as a humble servant man not even worthy to be in the presence of his master. He understood who he was in relation to the Lord Jesus. So let's take a look at Jesus' response in verse 9. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the multitude that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. I think this is amazing. Being marveled and amazed at this man's faith, Jesus is expressing feelings from his human side. Jesus being the Son of God, you'd think it would be very difficult to be amazed by someone on earth. Did you know there was one other time in the Bible where Jesus was marveled at mankind? Take a look on here. PowerPoint. Mark chapter 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who, were, who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's this wisdom that he's been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he's been forming? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense to him. And verse 6 says that Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. Notice the only other time that Jesus was blown away by man was their unbelief. The faith of the centurion isn't only amazing because no other person in Israel has faith like this, but nobody else in Jesus' life on earth amazed him in the way the centurion did. 
I want you to picture the scene a little bit with me here. And you have Jesus is almost at the centurion's house. He still has a multitude of Jewish people around him, including the recently handpicked 12 disciples. He receives this message from the centurion's friends, and he turns to the crowd, and he says, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. The chosen people of God have less faith than a Roman Gentile. Now, using the centurion's faith described in our passage today, I feel like we can answer the question from the beginning of our sermon. I'll remind you. Our question was, what does faith in Jesus look like? I have three things that I hope you don't miss from here that can help describe this. Our first lesson today is that faith begins by acting on what you know about Jesus without ever meeting him or seeing him. I picked this up in in Luke 7, verse 3, and he says, When he had heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. I also want to show you a cross-reference from Hebrews chapter 11. Verses 1 to 3. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is, what is seen was not made of things which are visible. So believing in the word of God that was given to you and acting on it, just like the Old Testament people did in Hebrews 11. So the question is, are we acting on what we have to come to understand about Jesus? Like the centurion acted on his faith, that Jesus had the power over life and death by sending for him to come and heal his servant. Lesson number two. Faith means trusting and believing in who Jesus is and the authority that he has. Luke 7, 7 and 8. Just say the word of my, my servant will be healed. And I too am a soldier with people under me. I also wanted to add a cross reference to this one in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. I want to read that to you. This is about Jesus. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So the question for us 
is, are we trusting in who Jesus says he is? Like the centurion trusted that Jesus had the authority to heal through his words alone. Are we trusting that Jesus is God? Who has the authority in your life? Your friends? Your family? Yourself? Or is it Jesus? In our last lesson today, faith in Jesus is evident by how we live our lives and in the decisions we make. And I picked this up from Luke 7, 7, and 8. Or sorry, verses 3, verses 5, and verses 7. By the centurion sending out people to, to reach out to Jesus shows us the evidence of his belief. In James chapter 2, verse 17 and 18 speaks on this as well. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. So you can see, based on those things, is your works are a living example of your faith. So the question we have from that is, do our lives reflect our faith in Jesus? Could others see the evidence of our faith like the Jewish elders could see the evidence of the centurions? So I'm sure there's some things I may have missed, but I hope I made that clear and that we can share our testimony and our faith with other people a little more clearly. Um, I look forward to hearing what you guys